Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. President Taylor, members of the faculty and students, it is always pleasant to come down here and meet with you young people in this great university. I want to say that I'm happy to have Mrs. Nibley with me. She graduated from this university many years ago when everything was on the lower campus. And she's very happy in her association with you. You have a wonderful spirit here. You have an exceptional and able president and a distinguished faculty. And as long as the gospel of Jesus Christ is taught here, as it was revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith, I think you have the greatest university in the world. President Wilkinson was kind enough to assign me a subject for my talk this morning. He stated that you would have presented to you today, as you have just heard, a large mural painting of the Prophet Joseph Smith, and that I should speak about him. This subject is very welcome to me and dear to my heart. Of all men who have been connected with our Church from the beginning, I hold him in the highest esteem. He is our greatest man. I think it is safe to say that without him, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would not have come into existence at the time it did. The state of Utah would be vastly different than it is today. And had not that boy been born, had he not lived and taught, it is certain that this great university would not stand upon this hill today. Millions of lives have been affected by this prophet. And what the future has in store for his teachings and his followers, only time will tell. He himself envisioned that the greatest organization in the world would grow out of this church, which he organized under divine inspiration. In 1842, two years before his death, he wrote the following. No unhallowed hand can stop this work from progressing. Persecutions may rage, mobs may combine, armies may assemble, calumny may defame, but the truth of God will go forth boldly, nobly, and independent until it has penetrated every continent 
visited every clime, swept every country, and sounded in every ear until the purposes of God shall be accomplished. And the great Jehovah shall say, The work is done. It is interesting to me that this great prophet and teacher was born in a poor family, that he had only a meager education. As nearly as I can find after many years of research, he may have had a fourth grade education as it being taught in our schools today. And then he had to struggle all his life for a livelihood. Perhaps poverty was a part of his training. The Lord told him early in his career, In temporal things thou shalt not prosper, for that is not thy calling. To be great, it is necessary to be born poor, said Carlyle. And then he added, the poor have to struggle. Struggle is the law of growth, said Hegel. And a man reaches his full height only through compulsion, responsibility, and suffering. Joseph Smith fought a sore battle all his days against poverty and want, and he struggled to provide the necessities of life for himself and family. I cannot find that he ever worked for money after he received his high calling. He had to be dependent upon his God for everything. It was quite interesting to me to learn, and I think I told you the last time I was down here, that when Joseph and Oliver got ready to translate the plates of the Book of Mormon, they had neither food to eat nor paper to write on. Joseph wrote to a friend, Mr. Joseph Knight, a prosperous farmer with whom he was acquainted, and whom he had previous, who had previously employed him and told him his circumstances. Mr. Knight, grandfather of Uncle Jesse Knight, who used to live here in Provo and whom I knew well, and who was a great patron of this, this university, Mr. Knight relates that when he received the letter, he consulted with his family about helping the boys. And then he wrote this, But they were all against me, as they did not know what it would amount to. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, there's a vast difference between appearance and reality. But Mr. Knight decided to go ahead and help anyway. He relates that he bought a ream of lined paper, a small barrel of mackerel, and that he took from his farm six or seven bushels of potatoes 
and eight or nine bushels of wheat, and he took it down to the boys, as he quoted in his written article. When he got to Joseph's house in Harmony, he found that they were, quote, out of provisions and in want. And again, he says, they had been out looking for work that day, but had not found any. The prophet of God, the greatest man then living in the world, in my estimation, not knowing where the next meal was coming from, that gives you and me something to think about. It appears that men of God do not have their minds set upon the things of this world. The divine man of Galilee once said, The foxes have holes. The birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Joseph Smith was a prayerful boy. It was a prayer that brought about the first vision when he went into the grove on his father's farm that day in May 1820 to ask his heavenly father which of all the churches was right and which he would, should join. He received his answer. And from that time on, he knew more about the true worship of God than any person living in the world. That vision restored God to the world. For hundreds of years, the true conception of God had been lost to mankind. I wonder if we are fully aware of the significance of the first vision. President Joseph F. Smith, the father of our present Joseph Fielding and the sixth president of this church, expressed himself strongly about this event in the sermon which I heard him deliver in the Salt Lake Tabernacle in July 1917. The greatest event that has ever occurred in this world, he said, since the resurrection of the Son of God from the tomb and since his ascension on high was the coming of the Father and the Son to that boy Joseph Smith to prepare the way for the laying of the foundation of his kingdom not the kingdom of man never more to cease or to be overturned Having accepted this truth, he continued, I find it easy to accept every other truth that he enunciated and declared during his mission of 14 years in this world. And then President Smith, who told me himself once in Nauvoo that he had sat upon the Prophet Joseph's knee as a child, his father was Joseph's brother, Hiram, then President Smith added this in his sermon. He never taught a doctrine that was not true. He never advocated an error. He heard 
and he did as he was commanded to do. Joseph related this vision to the Methodist minister in Palmyra, whose church he had been attending, and who, as nearly as we can find out, was a Reverend Mr. Lane. Joseph was surprised when the minister rejected his story. I was greatly surprised at his behavior, he relates, as he treated my communication not only lightly, but with contempt, saying it was all of the devil, and that there were no such things as visions and revelations in these days. This treatment by the minister did not change Joseph's mind. In his history, he wrote, However, it was nevertheless a fact that I had beheld a vision. I had actually seen a light, and in the midst of that light I saw two personages, and they did speak to me. And though I was hated and persecuted for saying I had seen a vision, yet it was true. Joseph fearlessly related this vision during the remaining years of his life. In his greatest recorded sermon, the King Follett Sermon, delivered at Nauvoo in April 1844, about two months before his death, he gave his final description of the true God. And I quote, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. If the veil were rent today and the God who holds the world in its orbit and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power were to make himself visible, I say if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form. Then he adds this, it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. You young people hold fast to this first vision, to the boy prophet. This vision is the cornerstone of our religion. The God Joseph saw is the God we worship and the God to whom we pray. I said a few moments ago that Joseph Smith was a humble boy, and I want to emphasize humility as one of the greatest virtues. I shall never forget when I was a missionary, when I read verse 8, section 12 of the Doctrine and Covenants. It struck me with great force, and I want to commend it to you. It was given in May 1829 to the Prophet Joseph before the church was organized. I hope you will listen carefully. Quote, and no one can assist in this work except he shall be humble. 
and full of love. I take it that that's love for the people. Having faith, hope, and charity, and being temperate in all things, whatsoever shall be entrusted to his care. No matter who you are, or what organization of the church you work in, you cannot be of any help, only as you are humble. And as our Heavenly Father inspires you what to say and what to do, that is the great secret of our church work also. I had the opportunity not many weeks ago to tell President McKay I'd been out to a conference how much the people loved him. He and I were sitting alone in his office. No one overheard us. I said, President McKay, wherever I go, the people all love you and look up to you. I never find anyone who does not love you in the church. He thought a moment and then he looked at me and he said, Well, that teaches me that I've got to be more humble. When I was mission president in the Northwest 20 years ago, I used to teach our missionaries to stand and say a little prayer before they knocked on any door that they might know what to say to impress anyone who opened that door. David Whitmer tells a little story of Joseph Smith's humility which I found in the history of the reorganized church. As you know, David Whitmer was with Joseph during the translation of the plates of the Book of Mormon. Here's David's little story. Quote, He, Joseph, was a religious and straightforward man. He had to be. For he was illiterate and could do nothing of himself. He had to trust in God. He could not translate unless he was humble and possessed of the right feelings towards everyone. To illustrate so you can see, one morning when he was getting ready to continue the translation, something went wrong about the house and Joseph was put out about it. Something his wife Emma had done. Oliver and I went upstairs and Joseph came up soon after to continue with the translation, but he could not do a thing. He could not translate a single word. He went downstairs out into the orchard and made supplication to the Lord. He was gone about an hour. He then came back to the house and asked Emma's forgiveness. And then he came upstairs where we were, and then the translation went right along. Joseph could not do anything save he was humble and faithful. Nor can we. 
Humility is a great virtue, one of the greatest. Thomas Carlyle, speaking to the Edinburgh students, advised them to be humble. Be modest. Be humble, he said. Cut down the proud, towering thoughts that are within you, or let them be pure as well as high. The prophet Joseph was courageous. Man's face he did not fear. God he feared always. That circumstance related by Parley P. Pratt when he and Joseph and others were taken by the mob in 1838 and placed in the little Richmond, Missouri jail illustrates the point I have in mind. The brethren were chained together so they could not escape. Fancy that. The prophet of God, the founder of our religion, the greatest man of his generation, chained and in prison. He did not get a very good reception from the people that he tried to teach and to bless. Parley relates this circumstance, quote, In one of those tedious nights, we had lain as if in sleep until the hour of midnight had passed, and they merely laid down and slept on the floor. And our ears and hearts had been pained while we had listened for hours to the obscene jests, the horrid oaths, the blasphemies, and filthy language of our guards as they had recounted to each other their deeds of rapine, murder, etc., which they had committed among the Mormons while in far west and vicinity. I had listened until I had become disgusted, shocked, and horrified, and so filled with a spirit of indignant justice that I could hardly refrain from rising to my feet and rebuking them. But I had said nothing to Joseph or anyone else, although he lay next to me, and I knew he was awake. All of a sudden he rose to his feet and spoke with a voice of thunder. Or as I can remember, as a roaring lion, uttering, as I recollect, the following words. Silence, ye fiends of the eternal pit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke you and command you to be still. I will not live another instance, inst I will not live another minute and hear such language. Cease your talk, or you or I die this instant. That was an exhibition of the highest type of courage. Parley Pratt continues, chained and without a weapon, Calm, unruffled, dignified as an angel, he looked upon the quailing guards whose weapons were lowered or were dropped to the ground, and who, shrinking into the corner or crouching at his feet, begged his pardon and remained quiet the rest of the night. I want to say a word or two about Joseph's sincerity and determination. I have to see what time it is. 
While others wearied of the great task of bringing forth the Church and Kingdom of God in the last days, and while some of the most prominent men in the organization fell by the wayside, the youthful leader of the Latter-day Saints did not at any time show weakness, nor could he be diverted from his purpose. God had given him a work to do. He would accomplish that work. He could not and he would not be defeated. In the blackest hours in the history of the Church, when the saints were being driven out of Missouri in the winter season, like a flock of sheep before hungry wolves, the young prophet was languishing in the loathsome Liberty Jail. These were his words to his people. Quote, Brethren, we feel to exhort you in the name of Jesus Christ to be strong in the faith in the new and everlasting covenant and nothing frightened at your enemies. As for himself and his fellow prisoners, quote, we will hold on until death. He did hold on until death. While still in this jail, the word of the Lord came to him to comfort and cheer him. He reduced this to writing, and we have it in our history. Quote, the ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name, but fools shall hold thee in derision, and hell shall rage against thee. While the pure in heart, the wise and noble and virtuous, shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from under thy hand. And thy people shall never be turned against thee by the testimony of traitors. And although their influence shall cast thee into trouble and into bars and walls, thou shalt be had in honor. And thy God shall stand by thee forever and ever. What greater promise could come to a human being than that? Thy God shall stand by thee forever and ever. And now a word or two about his ability as a public speaker, preacher of the gospel. I believe he was the greatest we have ever had. When he stood before a congregation, the words of living light flowed from his lips, and the people were taught and inspired. Lauren Farr, a Nauvoo pioneer, his grandson is here, told me many years ago, that he never had heard the gospel preached in power except by the prophet Joseph Smith. George Q. Cannon heard the prophet speak at the April Conference in 1844, and of this sermon he wrote, He chose for his subject the death of Elder King Follett, who had died a few days before and he uplifted the souls of the congregation to a higher comprehension of the glory which comes to the faithful after death. 
His address ceased to be a mere eulogy of an individual and became a revelation of eternal truths concerning the glories of immortality. The address occupied three and a half hours in delivery, and the multitude were held spellbound by its power. Now in closing, a few observations about Joseph and his family. He loved his wife and his children with a love that was stronger than death. When he was away from home, he was in constant anxiety about them. There are frequent mentions in his history which reveal to us his affectionate regard for his family. Under date of March 3, 1834, when he and Parley P. Pratt were on a mission in the eastern states, Joseph recorded the following in his little journal which we have in the historian's office. Oh, may God bless us with the gift of utterance to accomplish the object of our journey and safe return to the land of Kirtland and to find my family well. O oh Lord, bless my little children with health and long life to do good to their generation for Christ's sake. Amen. Joseph had a strong love for his parents and brothers and sisters. The Smiths were clannish people. They had been drawn closely together on account of the persecution they had had to endure from the time Joseph announced his first vision. But despite persecution, the family stood loyally by him and gave him their full confidence and support in his great efforts to establish the kingdom. Joseph was made doubly strong by his devoted and loyal family. In his life's work, the prophet Joseph was a successful man. Poor, uneducated, alone, he began to deliver his heaven-sent message. While other men of great ability joined his standard and assisted him in the work, the burden of leadership was always upon him. Persecuted, misunderstood, imprisoned, and abused by the world, yet honored and loved by his own people, he held to his course and stood to his great task until at last he could say to his brethren, quote, The kingdom is set up. There is not one key or power to be bestowed upon this church but I have given you, shown you, and talked it over with you. You now have the perfect pattern, and you can build up the kingdom and go in at the celestial gate, taking your train with you. I pray that our Heavenly Father will bless you, young people who are studying here, that your faith may increase, I hope you'll say your prayers and live close to the Lord and be humble. This I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches. 
classic speeches, and BYU speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.